Welcome to Sacred Intersections Podcast, where we navigate the twisty roads of harmful theology, mental health, and religious abuse. I'm Paula. I'm a licensed counselor, a counseling professor, and a person of Christian faith. And Jill is not with us today. We actually have a special guest with us, Carly Osler. Did I say that right, Carly? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> who will be introduced a little more completely very soon. But before we get started, just wanted to say that Sacred Intersections podcast is about respectful discussion and conversation to encourage you to think. We're not trying to make you think like us. We just want to make you think. That's the whole agenda. Neither of us speak on behalf of the Presbyterian Church USA or other organizations which we may be connected to in our professional lives. We don't speak on behalf of all mental health care professionals, people of faith, Jesus followers, white women, Americans, people who watch reality TV. That's going to make more sense in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Sacred Intersections is a podcast that includes discussion and conversation about religion, spirituality, mental health, and all those ways that they intersect. Because my co-host Jill and I were already having these kind of conversations and we decided to record them and share them. So we're just glad you're along for the journey, even if you're driving different roads or traveling in different vehicles than we are. So today you may have noticed um, we are going into the reality TV world a little bit and we are going to talk about the Duggar family and more specifically Josh Duggar and we're going to give a little bit more background about what that means if you have no idea who the Duggars are. But before that I do want you to meet Carly who was graciously agreed to join me today to talk about this. Um, she's an expert in this topic in much more ways than I am. And I'm going to let her introduce herself overall, but I do want to tell you a little bit about how I discovered her. I, y'all have heard me on earlier episodes talk a little bit about my love for reality TV and <laughs> how it's a guilty pleasure in a lot of ways. The Duggar show is not one that I have ever watched very regularly, but when I saw this story, was really interested in it and seemed appropriate for our show. And so started looking for someone in the mental health world who would have an expertise about trauma and about sexual abuse. And we should say at this point as well that this episode carries a trigger warning kind of all together. We are going to be talking about sexual abuse and child um, child pornography, which is actually, I have recently learned not the appropriate term even to use anymore. It is, it's not, pornography implies some kind of consent. And with children, it is, that's just considered child sex abuse. Um, so want to start out this episode with that warning that, that that's going to be the main topic of conversation for today. But as I started looking for an expert to help me with this, I actually went to the page of a conference that I'm speaking at at the end of this month. If you're listening to this as soon as it's released, we're in May of 2021. If you're listening to in the future, you missed this conference. Sorry. But I saw that. So Carly is also speaking at the 2021 International E-Conference on Religious Trauma, which is over, if you're in America, Memorial Day weekend on Saturday and Sunday, and it's completely virtual. So if that is something you are interested in, and you're hearing this in time to attend it, we'll put a link in the show notes for that. It's a really affordable conference. It's only $15 to attend two full days. And 
me and my dissertation advisor are speaking about my dissertation and Carly's going to be speaking. So I saw Carly's topic. So she is speaking on, is it a cult or is it a church? Power, control, and systemic oppression in religion. And I thought that sounded really appropriate to what I knew of the Duggar family and the systems that may have contributed to the abuse that we're going to talk about this episode. So I reached out to Carly, tried to convince her I wasn't some crazy stranger reaching out to her to ask her to be on a podcast, and I've had some really great conversations with her. So I'm so excited to welcome you, Carly, and please tell us more about who you are and your interest in this area. Thank you, Paula. It's Feels good. I, I loved hearing from you. I loved hearing from you when you reached out. It felt so nice to be recognized and also your sincerity around what you do, um, both your research on this podcast and your teaching, all of what you're doing. It, it just warms my heart to see this work that you're doing. It feels very important to me. Um, you doing it too. So I'm glad you're <laughs> a partner in this. Yeah. It, it feels like we come from different places, but it, it overlaps so much in, in the things that we care about, or at least when I, when I hear your work, I resonate with it so much. Yes. Um, so I am a trauma therapist. I work with complex trauma. Um, and I, and I think that there's a large umbrella of trauma and what that looks like. And I am trained as a marriage and family therapist, which I understand to be systems therapy. So I work with internal systems of neurobiology, nervous systems, ego structure, consciousness, and how they interact with external systems, how those external systems influence internally, how internal systems then get projected outward into how we live in these systems in the world. And so I do a lot of different things. That's my expertise, but it, but it just like works in all these different ways. I have a private practice. Um, I'm currently working almost predominantly telehealth. Um, there are maybe one or two people that I've just this month started seeing in person because we're both vaccinated, but yeah, I, I, I mostly just do a lot of therapy and I'm kind of getting into this education aspect pretty recently. Yeah. One of the things I was saying to, to you before we started recording was just how excited I am to see people out in the field doing conferences, like what we're doing, like it, not just being people from the academic world, but people who are in the trenches, like you are day in, day out doing this work and really seeing what it looks like. Um, so I'm just thrilled that you're going to be presenting on it. I can't wait to hear your presentation. And I'm just so excited you were willing to talk to us today. Thank you. Same. So knowing you're a well-established licensed marriage and family therapist, what, is there anything that particularly drew you to, like when I read your topic about oppressive religious systems or working with trauma in the realm of religion and spirituality, is there anything you would want to share about that interest? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was raised in the Mormon cult faith. I refer to it as a cult. Some people take a lot of offense to that. Um, and when I look at what a cult is, Mormonism and my experience, and it fits. Mm. Um, and so making sense of the trauma that I experienced in religion, I, I worked for maybe six or seven years in Utah, helping people who were also leaving 
um, and disentangling from abusive theology, um, all sorts of religious trauma. And so doing the work for myself, doing the work with others. And then I recently moved away from Utah. I live in Austin, Texas now. I'm seeing these systems everywhere. And there, there was this kind of exceptionalism in Mormonism of like, we're special. And then when I Mm. left Mormonism, there was like, well, my my trauma is special. And it's not, it's everywhere. It's, it's in religion. It's in uh, government. It's in all of the systems that we give power to. Uh, And so those, those intersections are really interesting to me because I I don't think it's just, well, religion is bad or government is bad. I think all of us have this innate power to harm and to heal. And what we do with our internal systems and working with our internal systems helps us change external systems. Yeah. See, I knew you were the right one to talk about. (laughs) I knew you were the right one. Yeah, exactly. We use the term twisting a lot here on our podcast. Um, That was actually the the subtitle of my dissertation was a twisting of the sacred. So yeah, so power in itself doesn't have to be innately bad, but is how it is used and when it is used in an abusive way. So yeah, so yeah, so I think definitely your personal experiences and absolutely your professional experiences really will help speak to our topic today. So just to summarize, and you know, I mentioned that I didn't what I don't I didn't watch the Duggar reality TV show. I don't think you did either, Carly. So oh, I I watched some of it. There were a couple seasons. Okay. Yeah. So you may be coming to it with even more than I am. And we also want to start out with a disclaimer similar to what Dan Coke and I did both on his podcast and then when he came on to to ours to follow up on the Ravi Zacharias scandal, um, which was our other episode that we've done on a more public figure that Carly and I are not treating any of these people directly. These are not our clients. We are not here to analyze them or to speak directly to what is happening in their lives. Um, And that would be unethical. So we want to recognize that. And we want to say that directly, that we are not speaking as their counselors (laughs) in these situations. What we're going to look at a little more broadly is kind of using their story as a foundation for these systems that could lend themselves to abuse and could lend themselves to cover up and the messages that are being sent about sex and abuse and those kind of things. So while yes, we're going to be talking about these public figures, we're speaking only from what we know due to public knowledge that's coming from the media and from news and that we're going to be really careful not to speak as if we are their counselors. So we do want to be clear about that up front. Um, But just in case this is new to you and you're not familiar with this case, I'm going to give an overview and Carly, please jump in if, if I miss anything, but Josh Duggar is the point of interest here. And he is the oldest child of Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar, who got famous for having lots and lots of kids. They had 19 kids, I believe was where they finally stopped (laughs) (laughs) and they were on good morning. 
one of the morning shows, I almost said Good Morning America. I'm not sure which morning show it was. And out of that, they wound up getting their own reality TV show that ended up being called 19 Kids and Counting. Uh, it may have been 17 Kids and Counting, but as they added more, <laughs> I think the name of the show evolved and changed with them. And many of those kids are grown up and have their own kids now. And But Josh Duggar is the oldest, and he has been in the news in scandalous ways several times. Uh, Back in, I believe it was 2015, a story broke that he had molested when he was a young teenager. So he was a juvenile himself, um, I think around 13, definitely young teenager, had um, molested four of his uh, female siblings who were younger than he was, and perhaps someone else, I think I've read a babysitter, someone else that he had engaged in, in some type of sexual abuse with, with the siblings and that that was not brought to light at that time. It was brought to light much later, interestingly enough through Oprah. (laughs) So this is interesting. They were going to be on the Oprah show and someone leaked. I think someone anonymously told Oprah that they should not have them on their show because Josh Duggar had done this. And then the Oprah show wound up making a report they want an investigation came out of that. This was three years later that this happened. So, so what had happened at the time, what we later found out at the time that this abuse had happened is that there, it was not reported to the authorities. It was all handled within the church and the church elders. I believe Josh was taken to see a family friend who was also in law enforcement who should have been a mandate, who was a mandated reporter, should have reported, did not, and just kind of gave him a stern talking to. Josh was sent to some kind of Christian work camp. It's not super clear what that camp was. Um, It certainly was not an official treatment facility. So I see you nodding, Carly. Anything that you kind of want to, that you know about that particular instance that you wanted to add? I mean, all that I read on Wikipedia, because that's, you know, that's what I got, is (laughs) that there was physical punishment, that there was physical labor um, involved in punishment kind of doled out by family, friends and family instead of anything beyond that. Right. So no juvenile sex offender treatment. And there are many programs for juvenile sex offenders that out there, there are lots of programs, residential programs and otherwise that are licensed and, but that is not what Josh experienced. So then he came back home living with the family. Life goes on. He gets married. He now has six of his own children and his wife is pregnant with their seventh. Since he's been married, other things that have come out is in the Ashley Madison scandal, which if you don't remember what that was, Ashley Madison was a website that basically gave cover for men specifically to cheat on their wives. And It was, and they were hacked and all of their records were made public and Josh Duggar happened to have spent a lot of money with them. He did Mm -hmm. confess to this publicly, I believe. His wife has remained with him throughout this whole, everything that's come out. And that might've been around the same time that the other stuff was made public from his youth. And then in the last few months, Josh has been arrested on charges of child abuse because he had child pornography. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that that's a term that, that in my more recent understanding is not always the most appropriate term. I don't, I'm not completely sure the best term to use. So I'm just going to apologize for using that, but 
that's, I think, the best description of it. And this came from a raid that that law enforcement had done on his, he owns a car business, I think. They mm-hmm. had raided it in 2019. And one of the things they took was his computer. I think that was not necessarily related to this. It might've been related to financial stuff. But in looking at the computer, they found at least 200 images that had been deleted. One of the arresting officers described this as the five worst cases he had seen when he looked at the content of this. So this apparently was very, very young children um, in the pictures and in the video. And so he's been arrested, was initially not given bail, but eventually was given bail to go lit, go stay with a custodian who is a church member and not allowed to have internet, not allowed to have contact with children, I believe has an ankle bracelet, can't leave the home, is allowed to see his own children with his wife present. So that's in his trial. He's awaiting trial in July with the potential of 20 years in prison with lots of fines. So that's what we know, or at least what has been reported up to this point. Does that sound like, does that yeah. go along with everything, you know, Carly? Absolutely. So, you know, we've got our categories and we're going to try to break them down, but I just kind of wanted to throw it at you, Carly. And just when you first hear this story, what stands out to you? Does this sound surprising to you? Is this just what, what kind of is your first as a trauma therapist? What hits you? First? Yeah. Oof. All of it hits in so many different ways. Um, I just think about like how much of this could have been prevented. How much of this just like compounded and compounded to this place where, I mean, at this point with all of the compounding trauma, it sounds like these uh, punishments or right him not being able to see children, him being bound to his home. This is the only option for him to be safe with himself. Mm-hmm. That all of this has just kind of built and built and built to this place of tumbling, crumbling, like it just can't exist anymore. And thank goodness, like, I hope that there can be so much healing. Maybe this is that turning point for Josh and for um, the survivors. But who knows? Who knows knows what's going to happen? Yeah. And from from a religious systemic perspective, you know, we I, one of the things that first appealed to me from your title, from the conference you're going to speak at is kind of, is it a cult or is it a church? And I've shared with our listeners that, that when I said, I'm, I research religious abuse and what I'm going to study, everyone says, oh, you're studying cults. And I will say, no, that's kind of on a very far end of a continuum of what I consider complete control, but that abusive practices can happen all along the continuum of religion. And Mm -hmm. so as I was researching this particular, their religious practices, I have heard many people refer to the religion that the Duggars practice as a cult. And then I've heard the argument that it's not a cult. So, you know, we don't have to get too much into that question, but what Mm -hmm. we do know about it is it's a very fundamentalist, um, quite rigid set of beliefs. Um, They at least at one time were associated with Bill Gothard who has an institute, um, is controversial. I'll just say that. That's If you want to research more of that, listeners, go ahead and do that. But at least is controversial and has been referred to as a cult in 
pop culture by some people. But what, but even if we don't describe their environment as a cult, what we know is that it's a very almost closed loop, very rigid fundamentalist system. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Yeah. And what I was reading about the Duggars and their religion, they almost practice their own individual type of religion, which, uh, and what I was reading is they're pretty isolated, like almost separatist, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a form of abuse. Isolating is a form of abuse. So that in and of itself, there we go, some religious abuse. And there's so many levels of that being compounded that there's just so many things that make this a mess. Yeah. And isolation, can you speak a little more to why isolation can be so problematic, especially when it comes to trauma and the potential for abuse? Yeah. The smallness of the world shapes what we can experience. It's a way to control who you can be supported by, who you can interact with, um, how big your world can be, how much space that you can take up. Um, it's hard to have a subjective experience, you know, as a lot of us have found out in the past year of COVID, there's not a lot when our worlds are so small and isolated, like it's confining our, our sense of selves to shrink. How do we're not, not being connected to the world around us um, is spiritually abusive. Yeah. I think that key word that you said early on control, it's so much easier to control someone when you've cut them off from other forms of thought, from other Mm -hmm. forms of support. And that's a great point that this is so timely to help us understand it when we all have been so isolated and how, like, we all know we were resistant to that. Almost the whole world fought against that. (laughs) And so when we see the system that is founded on that, so, so yeah, I think us understanding isolation is really helpful to this whole discussion. So, you know, when we look at the mental health road and the religion road, which are the two intersections that we talk about a lot, we don't have Jill here with us today. We don't have our pastor voice. We've got two mental health voices coming along, but I think this is one of those where those roads are, are almost instead of necessarily intersecting really kind of on top of each other, because the religion piece and the mental health piece are really along this going is, along the same path. This is something that I'm particularly interested in. Psychology and spirituality used to not be split. They mm. used to be interconnected, interwoven, and there's a lot of history behind like what happened. But yeah, mental health and religion, it's almost like there's been this big split and we've like, you know, separated them and and there's conflict sometimes between them, but Inherently, our spirituality and our mental health are and need to be connected. Absolutely. Yeah, you are, you are speaking my language. That's a big part of my advocacy around that it is possible to do it in an ethical way, you know, that it is possible to allow someone to struggle with some of maybe the negative impacts of their religious process or to also use some of the positive coping that may come from it. So, so for sure, these are, and unfortunately what we're looking at today is, is where we think some of those negative impacts could have mm-hmm. been there. So, you know, first of all, talking about 
the treatment, and I put that in quotation marks, kind of treatment that Josh received early on. You know, I heard you say earlier that one of the things that struck you as you heard this story was how preventable it all, us getting to this point was. So when you look back at that, um, is that a place where you see some prevention could have happened? And what would you have liked to have seen for Josh back when this first came to light? Or, or not yeah. Josh, because we're not analyzing Josh, but someone in this situation <laughs> like this, what could Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, with early sexuality, we, we are sexual from a young age and it's really normal to be sexually curious from a young age. Um, I'm not sure when Josh specifically was said to have, like when the first instance was reported of abuse. But um, I mean, there's, why was nobody like interacting with Josh in a way that they understood where are you at with your sexuality, right? Mm -hmm. When you have 19 children, those developmental needs get lost in the numbers. It is a numbers game. And, And if you don't have even a community because there's this isolation, like these children are gonna be developmentally stunted in not receiving the care that they need. Um, so Josh was, or, you know, anybody in this situation who was mentoring them about healthy sexuality and, and what age were those messages coming in? Um, and when there was some sexual exploration, because all kids are going to explore themselves and be interested in others sexually. And if your family is all that you're around, that's who you're going to be sexually interested in. If that's your only level of interaction, that's where those feelings are going to develop. And from what we know of this system, it seems like the messages that were being sent about sex in general were probably not super healthy in these systems. What are some of the messages you see being sent about sex in general in these more fundamentalist or really rigid systems? Yeah, that um, like almost like a cutting off of sexual self, that it is bad. Those parts of you um, are of the devil, um, that uh, people who are um, assigned female at birth are um, inherently sexualized and hypersexualized and then made responsible for being hypersexualized. Uh, and then um, men are told that they are hypersexual and that that is bad and wrong and to suppress and that it is, it's wrong to be sexual with yourself, which is just beyond me at this point of, of you in and of yourself, the nature that is in you is wrong and a bad. It dissociates you from your sexuality. It separates, it disembodies you from those parts that are innately you. And it tells you to believe this instead of listen to what's happening inside of you. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I think this is way oversimplifying it, but just this idea that sex is bad and that your, um, you know, your, the parts that engage in sex are bad and to be avoided and to be covered up and to not be discussed and to not be engaged with in any way. And, you know, that's not to say, you know, we probably have many listeners who believe in 
in sex, saving sex for marriage or only engaging in sex within a marital relationship. And even in something like that, it doesn't have, like, that's a, that's a valid decision for anyone who absolutely and being careful about the message that even in that, that sex is not inherently bad. And I, I, we don't usually get into the very, just like dramatic words like that or black and white thinking, but, but that seems to be the message that, that started all this is just this idea that sex is bad. And that if you think about sex, that's bad. And if we talk about sex, that's bad. And the one time you engage in it, and then we talk about it, it's really bad. Um, it, it, but our, as you mentioned, our natural curiosity is telling us something else. And so that creates a real dissonant idea in our brain about what, what do we do with that when we've got these, these questions and we're told not to engage in them at all. Yeah. It, it really does disembody the self, right? When you're told that from a young age and a young age, like you bury those parts of yourself, you shame yourself. Like how else are you going to suppress your nature? How else are you going to, uh, you know, not be shamed publicly or ostracized, uh, for these natural parts of yourself, unless you dissociate and hide and cut yourself off from yourself. And, and so that seemed to be reinforced in this situation when it did come out and we don't know, I don't think we know exactly how it came out. If maybe some of the sisters went to their parents or, or how this came out, but that when it did come out, the message was sent to be quiet, that, mm-hmm. that we don't go to the authorities on this. We don't get you help in the more traditional mental health way that we don't talk about it. I imagine yeah. even within the system or certainly outside of the system. Yeah. Yeah. And, and oof, hearing that the treatment of it was the treatment, right? Like how, how they responded to it, the response to when it was reported um, was keeping it quiet. And then like, the, just to me, the idea that physical punishment, right. Physical labor is going to help or support. Um, it just objectifies the person, right? Like, yes, operant conditioning works with dogs. Mm. Humans are not dogs. Humans are not dogs. Mm-hmm. And it, and it just sub sublimates that shame and that fear and that sense of self even deeper. Yeah. And that word shame, I think is really critical here with both what Josh is the abuser sounds like he probably experienced, but also for his victims, you know, for, for people, you know, for the women who then, even though they probably were not told this directly, still somehow receive the message that they are bad in this, or that they are, that they have to keep quiet themselves too about their own experience. Yes. Yes. That kind of messaging. Yeah. And, And it's hard to know, like, I imagine with a public facing family, there were a lot of messages about like, the media can't get a hold of this. We can't, you know, it, it'll make the church, it'll make the family look bad. We'll lose our money. There's a lot of pressure of like everybody else's needs before your own healing. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, obviously that's amplified in this specific situation where this is a very public family, literally on TV every week, literally making a living from being public figures. So they they did have 
some dependency on maintaining this public persona in this way. Mm -hmm. But that happens, that plays out anytime, especially there's sexual abuse in a religious system over and over and over again, where this value is placed on the public face and what people see rather than someone's authentic experience of who they are. Yeah. And I think our celebrity culture just contributes to that. We have people that we designate as gods. Like that's how celebrities are treated, that they're perfect. And there's this perfectly curated image of them. And then other people aspire to that level of curation and we lose a sense of authenticity and that life is really messy and complex. Our human nature is not godlike. Yeah, is not perfect. Um, yeah. And that, you know, even if we take out the abusive part and the, the sex part of this, just how interesting that is and how so many of our churches just people in our churches every day experience this. I think Jill and I have talked about this, this idea that you have to, in in air quotes, clean up to go to church, you know, and that you have Ooh. to, you can't bring your authentic self to a religious system and that God mm. only likes you when you're shiny. And I've also heard in addition to that, like, or at least my experience with Mormonism is like, you are a representative of God. You're a representative of the church. You have to show everyone how cool Mormonism is, how cool your religion is. Like um, you are representing God. And so you have to put this ego self out there for the world. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure. And that, you know, I'm trying to think how, you know, again, we think about it being twisted. So I don't think and maybe this is my own stuff. And just as a follower of Jesus, like wanting to represent Jesus doesn't in itself sound bad. It's just like what you said, if I am only allowed to show the parts of myself that are already, I don't know. I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say with this, but that's, you You look like you want to say. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there is right. Like being a representative of Christ and trying to aiming to be Christ-like, it, it makes it hard to show that authentic struggling part. And, and I imagine there is a lot of struggling of like, can I be authentic? Can I talk about what's really in here? Can I even acknowledge for myself what's in here? I mean, like I was in my thirties before I really owned that I'm gay and non-binary. Like I couldn't know myself. It wasn't just like, I can't tell other people it's, I can't even look and know these things about myself. Mm. And so I think there is this constant struggling of what can I show to the world? What can I show to myself? How do I even structure my sense of self? Because I've only been allowed to do what I've been told. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great way to put it is what am I allowed to show to the world and then what's really happening within me and how do those, how are those similar and how are those completely different and how do I reconcile those? And then getting to the point where what I do show to the world is actually what's happening here. 
And, you know, as you said, I'm, we're not God, we're not Jesus. We're not. So what we show to the world can't be like, that is making us godlike when we carry that burden of, I have to be the cool Mormon, as you said, (laughs) who is making it all look shiny or that God only loves me when I'm shiny, when God knows, but also what's behind that. Yeah. Yeah. And my community and my family, they only love me if I am supporting and and upholding this image that everybody's dependent on. Yeah. And I, that just sounds, if we go back to the Duggar situation, that just really, I imagine that celebrity culture that you mentioned really contributed to this. They already had a very public persona. You know, they already had the religious persona. They already had this level of fame that came with that. And so there was even more of a, we can't let this get out. And so, even though I imagine, I mean, I have to give the parents the benefit of the doubt that they cared about their daughters who had experienced this. I can't imagine they wanted to send the message that our public, what we show to the world is more important than what's actually happening to you. I imagine that's likely a message they received that my experience is less important than making sure our show gets to have another season, those kind of things. Possibly. Yeah. I think I think in that situation too, there's the compounded intergenerational trauma of the parents of then trusting and becoming dependent on you know TV as their source of income, as their source of supporting their children, which then creates this attachment trauma of asking their children and their family to take care of mom and dad's needs. Like the whole family Mm -hmm. is responsible for the financial well-being of the family. And that's Mm -hmm. a lot of pressure, a lot of codependency, a lot of attachment trauma around. I sublimate my needs. My needs are second. Family's needs are first. Yeah. That's a really great point to think how often abuse is suppressed or kept in the dark due to protecting somebody. And parents to some degree to, can they handle even the pain that I've been through? But yeah, when you add that our livelihood is dependent on this, I have to protect not just my family, but what a burden as a child having experienced trauma to then have to also suppress that even further, knowing that if this gets out, this, it's not just about me being embarrassed. It's about us losing our home possibly. I mean, I don't, that's, I don't know, but that's just supposition. You know, another piece of the religion road that I think I've seen throughout all of these, as, as I kept reading about Josh Duggar and how this started as a young teenager and then the Ashley Madison thing. And then the, and now the, the child pornography that was found on his computer is this idea of forgiveness and Mm -hmm the pressure to forgive. So that, oof, tell me, talk, talk to me, Carly, Where did, what comes up for you when you hear that? We've talked a little oh. bit about forgiveness being used in an abusive way on the podcast. I don't think we've done a whole episode on it yet, which I think we need to do, but, yeah. but yeah, what was the, oof, what came up for you? Where there is an expectation to forgive, true forgiveness can never happen. Like the forgiveness has to be uh, from the survivor, from, you know, individual. And when there is pressure and expectation for that to happen, it cannot exist in a real and authentic and healing way. Hmm. It is when it's for somebody else and on somebody else's terms, 
and it's not embodied for yourself, it there's still trauma there. It's still going to exist there. Yeah. And it almost, I think, can be a, a, a weapon to re-traumatize. It yes. Really become weaponized. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so hearing, you know, I think one of the things we've talked in the podcast before is about the idea of an event versus a process and that it's kind of like this magic wand that you forgiven, you know, you just kind of tap your wand and like, it's done. I've, you know, they've been forgiven and I've moved on and that means everything's okay. And that none of the effects linger and that it's like, it didn't happen. And I think if, if we want to get, you know, theological, just what God's able to do and what we're able to do are very different things. <laughs> and I think that's where we get confused a little bit, but, but I am, it sounds like these, his siblings were pressured to say they forgive him um, and what <sighs> that could do to their healing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's where I really like the categories of religious abuse that you've outlined and that you've worked with is that, yes, there is the single event trauma, but then there's also the systemic and cultural and family, mm. like compounding, never ending trauma mm -hmm. um, that just entangles so much pain and trauma and just makes it so much messier. Yeah. You know, if we think back to what I think you're referring to Carly is, you know, in my dissertation, I, we came up with three kind of broad categories of abuse and one being when the perpetrator is a leader. And that doesn't seem to have been the case here, at least in the initial abuse. But well, I think Josh being in the power dynamic of being the oldest brother, he's a leader yeah. in the family. Interesting. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because they were told to, to, the, the, a very clear hierarchy yeah. to has existed in that family. Yeah. And when it came to light and then the girls were told not to say anything about it, that's coming from the father who is absolutely set up as yeah. in that family. So that aspect of it at least was coming yeah. from the leader. It doesn't seem like theology was used as, I mean, who knows what was said, but it doesn't well, seem I, like that was a driving, go ahead. I think that you're talking about like forgiveness, like using theology of forgiveness, which can be, you know, a healing balm in certain situations to hear about forgiveness. And is this something that feels applicable to me and where I'm at with my wounds? But when that theology of forgiveness is used to enforce something else, right? Use weaponizing forgiveness to protect the family, to like, save face, um, then it becomes another layer of the abuse. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree that, that the theology of forgiveness was where that religious piece came in there. It doesn't seem like Josh used that necessarily as a part of the original abuse. Maybe it was, but when that, the fallout of not only did this happen, but you have to forgive that this happened immediately without processing it, without going through a healing part of it. Um, you know, that's where forgiveness being weaponized, I think could happen. And then we see that happening with the Ashley Madison thing. His wife then had to come out and say she forgave him for it. I say she had to come out. I don't, I, I have no idea what was in her heart and mind at that point. 
But when we look at the system, we know that it's likely that in when things like this happen, that women are women tend to carry the burden for the marriage and what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the emotional burden of it, and I and I think with celebrity culture, there's and just you know our culture in general, there's so much performing. There's so much performing of like, uh, this is a ritual of forgiveness of I'm telling people that I've forgiven, but what does that that look like? Yeah. What does that, what really happened? What was the process versus that one singular event? And in my dissertation, you know, all of my participants were women and many of them were women who were trying to leave a marriage or have left a marriage and then were characterized as the bad guy in their religious system because the husband was trying to save the marriage. And therefore it didn't matter what had happened prior to that to lead to the woman wanting to leave the marriage. It was just that she was wanting to leave the marriage. That was what was characterized Mm -hmm. only as the bad thing. Um, So that burden that women carry in a lot of these systems and the patriarchal gendered um, way that, I mean, we can't ignore the gender ish dynamics at play in this system. Absolutely. Absolutely. With, with patriarchy, there is a dependence on women to hold the emotional labor, to hold the whole relationship and it doesn't serve anyone, but then there's also this controlling of, of making women dependent on their patriarch on both the systems and on their marriage Uh, so there's not really an equal footing to be choosing each other there's a lot of dependence and i think we saw that too in this i know we're jumping back and forth quite a bit in this timeline but when the story broke about josh having abused his sisters the sisters then went on with meg and kelly um, to say we forgave him for this a long time ago and really downplaying what had happened. And, you know, maybe they did that completely from their own free will. Maybe they really wanted to do that. And I think it's worth examining or at least asking the question, how much did the demands of the patriarchal system that they were in contribute to that? How much did the demands of the celebrity culture and how much was that really that forgiveness being weaponized there yeah and then you know just this idea we were touched on this but that it seems like in the system that josh's wife is going to stay with him no matter what like that just seems to be everything i've read seems to be that's not even on the table for her to to leave the system and it's easy to judge her for that and it's also if we take a closer look a little easier to understand like how she, why she wouldn't feel empowered to to really speak out in any way about what's happening. Other thoughts on that marriage or what's kind of happening Mm. with her carrying the burden of now she also has to be the one babysitting him when he sees his children and she has to be present when he's with his children. I think that speaks to that emotional burden that you were talking about as well. Yeah, it, it, Oof, I have this harsh judgment um, that I probably need to like talk through, but there's a lot of research around like where there's expectation, there's no room for desire. So uh, in these patriarchal marriages, in these codependent systems, 
how can there be love or healthy sexuality when there's so much expectation and dependence Hmm. that there's, yeah, there's so much cutting off of self, cutting off of like any desire, any connection, because there's just roles and rules and roles and rules. And how do we get enough power to survive? How do we just survive this? Yeah, I think, yeah, that's, there's so much to pull apart right there. And what you just said, that's <laughs> a huge, all of that, such good stuff to consider. And, you know, again, we said at the beginning, we're on the outside looking in, we don't really know what's happening in their marriage. We don't really know what's happening in this family. And we're really trying to resist coming from a place of judgment about any of these individual people and mm-hmm. also using this situation to, to take a closer examination of the system. But, but yeah, in, in situations like this, where people have been asked to suppress their own needs for so long and to suppress what they may have wanted out of life, what they may have wanted out of a partner, what, what the expectations were, and do they even know what they might want in a system like that for so long? And then even, even just as an individual trying to step into what might I want after your whole, maybe, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years, however many long years of not getting to consider what you want. It's terrifying. It's traumatizing to think about what are my needs? Cause there's so much there. There's so much that has been buried and compounded it, it, that you have to dig through to get to the authentic needs and wants and feelings and desires. Yeah. When you have been taught what you want for so long and you've not been encouraged to explore that for yourself and you've had very clear expectations about what your life and your marriage are going to look like. And, and you've also embraced these religious ideals behind it so that it's not just these systems of marriage and relationships, but it's also very existential about the meaning of life and eternity and good and evil. And what's, that's just, that's a lot to expect anyone to unpack when they're dealing with six children and one on the way and dealing with um, a lot of their own trauma and possibly in a marriage. And yeah, so it's, it's, I just would caution myself and everyone, you know, all of our roadies listening that, that it's, it's very easy to judge these situations. And there's also a reason why these systems continue, you know, there's a lot of power in these systems that make it very hard for individuals within these systems to the system. Um, Yeah. It's a lot to unpack, even just changing a little bit of theology in my own mind about something, you know, I know what I go through. And if this was what had created my home wor- whole world, I can imagine just that's a lot. So what, what do you say, Carly, to the rebuttal when we look at this from a systems perspective that, oh, there's only a few people causing the problems. And those are the ones that get all the publicity and all the attention and that this isn't really a problem in this particular system or conservative, you know, fundamentalist religions in general. What would you, what would you say to that rebuttal? Yeah, there, there is this like black and white splitting that happens. And, and I think it happens of, uh, right. It happens in like 
we want to separate. Those are the bad ones. There's only a couple of bad ones. And even with like our interest in uh, like crime podcasts and documentaries, like right, this interest in just splitting and separating, like, wow, those are the bad ones over there. Look at how bad they are. And now we understand how you. They're apart from me. They're other. Yes. And I'm over here and they're over there. Yes. I mean, anytime we want to have a judgment, right? Those judgments are some parts of ourselves that are difficult to look at that we want to separate and split and have no part of. Yep. When we other, other that situation, other those people. Yes. And yet, you know, we know that unfortunately sex abuse, especially of children is rampant. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not talked about, but it's, it is, you know, there's research, but even having to have a, a trigger warning, I think that's part of why it's not talked about. It is really triggering. It is really common when we really look at the many ways of what sexual abuse can look like. Yeah what childhood sexual abuse can look like, mm-hmm. how easy it is, how common it is to repress and uh, disconnect and dissociate from childhood sexual abuse, which can even be a parent sexualizing a body, mm-hmm. right? There can be just words of like, is sexualizing a child's shoulders, right? Like a three-year-old, like you have to cover your shoulders or somebody's going to sexually abuse you. This can be a form of sexual abuse Mm -hmm. of overly sexualizing a child, giving those messages, right? So on some level, the energy of sexual abuse, because it exists, it's something we all experience, but it's something that we often want to like split off and cut off from. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we, you know, knowing that even the most conservative numbers that we know are still huge numbers and that those likely don't represent the actuality. And we look at a system like this, that's already saying, we don't talk about sex and we don't engage in sex until Mm -hmm. a very specific situation. And if you do engage in it, you don't, we definitely don't talk about it and you should be shamed and you should pretend that like that didn't happen. That makes sense that the system then would indefinitely not create an environment where it can come out to the light and be addressed. Mm-hmm. In a healthy Absolutely. Way. Yeah. So I think we've already touched on this, but when we look at our category of who's driving, which is where we go, who's in charge here, who's in control here, and what kind of control they're trying to maintain. You know, we've already, we mentioned the patriarchy. And so, so that's, I wonder if you have thoughts about just how all this stuff that we're discussing helps to maintain the patriarchy, helps to maintain men staying in control. Mm-hmm. Well, I think because these systems have been inherited and the trauma of these systems have been inherited. We've got intergenerational trauma of patriarchy and and existing in these systems for so many years, so many generations, that we are socialized to support these systems, right? Our internal systems are developed around supporting patriarchy, supporting white supremacy, supporting like these systems of power that exist. Um, 
The easy way to do anything is the way you've always done it. And this is what we've known. This is what we've lived in. And so without even realizing it, we continue to support it. Yes, absolutely. It lives in all of us. The intergenerational trauma of it lives in all of us. We all unconsciously support these systems, give our power to these systems. And starting there allows us to recognize, allows us to dismantle the ways our internal systems give power to patriarchy. And we we do that by looking at who we're listening to. Who do we believe? What do we believe? Where does that come from? And what are we being allowed to listen to? What are we being Mm. allowed to believe too? So even like- And who's our authority that gets to tell us we're allowed to or not? The people who want to remain that authority. Yeah. So- so yeah, I, that's, I think, always an interesting question. If you are to a point where you're allowed to choose, when, what were the times that you were not allowed to choose and how are we gravitating towards the same thing or gravitating to other things? Because, you know, Jill and I say a lot that systems that can't stand up to examination are not very mm-hmm. strong systems. Those are very insecure systems. So and that doesn't yeah. mean well, it's going to feel uncomfortable, you know, examining something that we're really tied to is not always comfortable, but, um, but if it's truly a secure system, it will withstand examination and exposure to things that maybe we're not allowed to be exposed to. Yeah. And when that insecurity of the leaders and the systems get too big, then power and control and it can step in to try and enforce and maintain that power and control in those systems. Yeah. And you can always tell, or you can often tell who is, who is in control or who is in power by who is benefiting by Mm -hmm. the current status. So who is, you know, who is, I had kind of thought through the question of whose needs are being valued in this situation? Like is the needs of the people who've been abused being valued or the needs of the abuser? And so, and you, I think had some thoughts about that. Yeah. That's hard for me too, because I don't think anybody actually wins with patriarchy, right? Perpetrator trauma, the trauma of perpetrating is also real and valid, right? It spiritually cuts us off from our sense of values, from our sense of authentic self-worth of our actions being in line with our values. Um, When we value anything over our actions being in line with our values, um, we end up perpetrating. And when we aren't given space to process, when we aren't giving ourselves, allowing ourselves, making room for ourselves and other people supporting room to process our perpetration, again, compounded, sublimated, goes just becomes rampant into further abuse. Yeah. And I want to be clear for our roadies who are listening that that doesn't mean that what they, that you, we're not in any way trying to excuse what they did, like the behavior no, yeah. are wrong. Absolutely. And, and I mean, that's, that's a part of it, right? Like, if we're dependent on other people to tell us what's wrong, that's a problem. That's a big, mm-hmm. big problem. If we can't connect to our own feelings of self-betrayal when our actions have gone out of what our values are, we can't 
forgive ourselves. We can't be safe with ourselves. We have to cut off from ourselves. Being able to sit with our self-betrayal of, wow, I did something. I did something that was not in line with my sense of self, my core being. Mm. Um, And I need to understand what contributed to that so that I can more fully live with my actions in line with my values. And not engage in those actions in a further way. Yes. So by humanizing the abuser or the perpetrator, you know, that doesn't excuse those actions, Mm -hmm. but it also recognizes that there's a lot of layers to this and that there is a human there that is, that is not black and white as far as figuring out what's right or wrong. You know, it's very rare in life that someone goes, this is wrong and I'm doing it because it's wrong. You know, this is wrong and I'm doing it because I want to be wrong or I want to hurt. There are people out there who do that, but I don't think that's the vast majority of people who harm other people from that perspective. Again, super clear, not a reason to do it, not an excuse there. When this happens, there should still be accountability any power that that person had should be taken away from them. They should no longer stay in a position of power or have access to that. I just think about like how much it can heal when we, when we do have power, when we do have authority to be able to say, I am going to step down. I something is happening for me mentally and spiritually where my actions are not in line with my values and it's not okay. I'm not able to be in control and be in alignment with my values. So I cannot be trusted with this power and control. Like that is ultimately what could be healing. Like that is, that's my dream. That's my dream for what the world could look like of how we can heal. That's your Um, U-turn when we, when we jump ahead to that kind of that (laughs) U-turn. But that's such a great point, Carly, that, that, if we could learn to give up power when we don't know what to do with it, if that could be normalized instead of holding power for the sake of being powerful and for the sake mm-hmm. of having power over people. But that so often is where we see so much abuse happening is when people, when the power becomes the goal, as opposed to some, to, to what the power can help you serve people or how the power can help you, you know, help in some way. You know, and thinking about something you said earlier struck me too, as when we know something is wrong and being able to discern for ourselves what is right and wrong, it kind of just one, I wanted to, to go circle back to that because it struck me that that's so often a tool of the abuser to create distrust of yourself, of what is right and wrong. Like, because like kids, know when they are touched in a way that is not right like they know it but the abuser can create this lack of trust in yourself and that's what tumbles into i think is such a marker of so much trauma not being able to trust yourself and your instincts Mm -hmm. absolutely like trusting children trusting anybody's subjective experience even if it's difficult to understand, right? Like being curious and trying to make sense of it rather than gaslighting, dismissing, like reshaping what their experience is for them. I mean, gaslighting is a form of abuse, right? Just this dismissal, the shaping of somebody else's reality is, is a way that we abuse. 
Yeah. And for those listeners who may not know the term gaslighting, I know Jill and I have talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but it's basically exactly what you were saying is being convinced that you're, that you can't trust yourself for Mm -hmm. about reality, about whatever's wrong. And I wonder, I would just love to hear your thoughts on this. I wonder, we, we say in the field a lot and in pop culture that it's almost as if people who've been victims of abuse previously have a have a mark on them somehow that where abusers can tell and are just kind of drawn to them to know. And that's why we see people who've been in abusive relationships are more likely to, to, to have another abusive relationship down the road. And I wonder if that's a big part of it is that they, they're this, they pick up on this sense of them not being able to trust themselves. Absolutely. Whether, whether conscious or unconscious, um, that energy is there the the way we use our language, the way we protect or don't protect ourselves on really subtle levels. Like when I when I left Mormonism, I'm realizing now how much I've struggled with like really wanting something else to be my God and my religion. And so yeah, there are abusers that are gonna come in and say like, I'll be your God, I'll be your religion. Let me do that for you. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to do this self-work. You don't have to reparent yourself and decide what your values are. I'll do it for you. Hmm. So they are able to discern that void for whatever reason and mm-hmm. really want to, to, to and offer a way for that to be filled that feels comfortable, but it's different. So we don't always identify it as the same abusive system or the same abuser as before. Yeah. Interesting. That's so interesting. So if we look at our U-turns, you know, you mentioned our, our earlier one that was your big U-turn about power and what you wanted to see with that. What else would you like to see have happened either kind of in this situation from what we know of it, or just in these type of systems in general, what, what would we like to see instead? Mm. Re like slowly, gently, sincerely, safely reconnecting to embodiment, um, to that sense of self for each member of the family, for the intergenerational trauma in the parents, in Josh, in all of the siblings and everybody involved. I mean, I would go to the whole world. Can the whole world be embodied in themselves? Please, let's work on that. And for people who that's the first time they're hearing that term, can you break mm-hmm. down what you mean by being embodied? By yeah. embodied. Yeah, it is kind of one of those. Um... And I love that you have birds, that I hear birds flying around. <laughs> You're already in such a serene, seemingly environment, and I wish our I wish our roadie listeners could hear you. You already look so serene in this great, peaceful environment, and and for our roadie's listeners who are hearing, just these are birds flying around in Carlos area. It's so serene, so I've enjoyed it. Anyway, embodiment. You were going to tell us what embodiment means, yes, from a clinical and from a realistic, just experiential standpoint. The birds are bringing us into embodiment of being in our bodies, of noticing the sensations in our world, noticing what's happening to us, our own experience, validating our own experience that yes, those are birds. Yes, they are chirping. How do you feel about it? What's that like for you? Do you notice any 
uh, tension or confusion around what's going to happen with the birds, what is happening with the birds. Like all of those experience, all of those kind of questioning helps us further embody into our experience, our truth. I love how you just took, how you used such immediacy <laughs> of what was happening around you. So, so to kind of break it down for someone who may not still kind of able for a non-clinician who might be listening. So I, I hear that it's just really being able to to be in ourselves and be okay with what's happening and to be very, very present, I think is Mm -hmm. maybe a way to to say in a different way. Um, And I don't, I don't know how to break that phrase down even further for what it means to be present. It is, it is hard to describe embodiment. It's hard to be embodied. I think so many systems in our North American westernized culture disembody us really like make it hard to be in our bodies, but it's connected to sensory experiences and the sensations happening inside our bodies. So right now I've got kind of some chills, which happens for me when I'm talking about things that I care a lot about that I'm excited about, you know, like noticing the sensations of, muscles? Can you notice your heart beating? Can you notice like emotions will often have sensations of like tightness in the chest around anxiety or like a pit in the stomach. So embodied means really like in your body, in the sensations of your body. And when we get into our brains and our heads, this sort of like thinking and logic of, well, I'm going to do what the church says, like it takes us out of our bodies. And so a lot of us really have grown up in our heads, in our brains, in our logic, in our rational, what's going to work logically, rationally. And it, it can be a really bumpy ride. Even like, I'm sure as we're saying this, there are going to be people who are like, what, what's in my body. It's going to be uncomfortable mm-hmm. and that's normal. Cause we spend so much of our time, especially people who've experienced trauma, trying mm-hmm. to get away from it, yeah. trying to not be in that. And that's yeah. why we see it so often in people who have experienced trauma, because yeah. the way you survive trauma is to detach from it, is to try to get away from it. And then it's very hard to come back and to, to, to be present when that trauma is not actively happening. Yeah. Yeah. That, that trauma gets tucked away, hidden away, disembodied, because we do have to survive that moment. Mm -hmm. But until we are able to be in our bodies and fully process all of the sensations that kind of got tucked away from that experience, whether because we didn't have the support we needed, um, right? If, If you're out running a lion, which is traumatic, you can't stop and really process the trauma of I almost died. You just have to outrun the lion. You go, I should run now. <laughs> you just, yeah. Yeah. You just, you just run until yeah. after it's over and you're safe, then you can maybe sit and process it. Or if we mm-hmm. pack it away and pretend like it doesn't happen, then it it's, remains in there in some yes. way. Yes. 
we get nervous looking for, is there another lion? Oh, I'm seeing some fur. Is that a lion? Should I run away? Like everything becomes the trauma until we process it through our bodies and make meaning of it. And it can be as simple as, you know, I know if I've got something happening in my life that is painful to think about and I am laying down to go to sleep and that keeps coming up. I've noticed, especially in pandemic times, my tendency to pull up my phone and play a game on my phone to push that away. Like, and I, that's Mm -hmm. literally what, not literally, but that's what I'm trying to do is not let that enter my mind. And Mm -hmm. I know that that will at least temporarily make me focus on this game on my phone, as opposed to this very painful thing that's going to keep me from sleeping for a little while. Um, Yeah. And if we, and once in a while, that's normal to, to absolutely when we can engage in that pain, but very healthy. Yeah. But if it, if we're constantly doing that and never having time to engage in that pain and to, to, to embody the healing of it, that that's where it takes over our life to a degree. Mm -hmm. I'm not a trauma specialist, so I'm learning along with you all, Rody, <laughs> um, just picking Carly's brain with this. So other U-turns that we might want to see in this system, you know, one of the things I was thinking about were those messages about sex and sexuality. And if we take it way back, kind of how that is communicated in this, these systems. I just wonder if you have thoughts about how that could... Um, even within a more conservative religious system, what are some ways that sex could be messages about sex could be a little healthier? Yeah. And uh, I, I, I don't know how you're going to feel about this or how listeners are going to feel about this, but the BDSM and kink community really have so much insight and have done so much work on making sex a very safe emotional place to be that so much can exist sexually there's no shame or if there is it's conscious and chosen and you know used in a way where there's a lot of consent so communication around consent that everything that exists can be normal and natural and how do we feel about it what do we want to do with it when you think about it in relation to others sort of a slowing down of how we talk about sex, how we let people talk about sex, how we let children talk about sex, that all of it is normal and natural. And let's really think about this. So I think one of the big things from that community to be taken can be the intentionality around the discussion. Yes, yes. that, That really, because there's sex and then there's the meaning that we attach to it. Absolutely. And that's what we, what we are examining here is what meaning has this system attached to it, which seems to be a message of shame and seems to be a message of repression as opposed to let's be intentional about what we're consenting to or what we're describing or what we're experiencing and discussing. The intentionality and like awareness of our own trauma awareness of I think especially as if if we're talking about parents or leaders like what are we doing with our power what are we doing with the messages that we've received about sexuality about our bodies Um, and how can we allow space for children to have their own subjective experience 
and to support them in understanding their own subjective experience, especially around sexuality, especially because like frontal lobe has not been developed. So there's not often a lot of reasoning skills and stopping ourselves from doing until our frontal lobe of the brain is developed. So how can we support children in thinking about the actions that they're taking around their sexuality uh, without shaming them or denying them their subjective experience? Yeah, we talk about, you know, in the mental health community a lot, how discussions of things doesn't make things happen. You know, like, like I teach my students all the time, asking your clients if they're having thoughts of suicide is not going to create thoughts of suicide. So I think yeah. it's a really similar parallel here that discussions of sex is not going to make your kids go out and have sex. <laughs> you know, it's not going to. I think the opposite is true, right? If we're not talking yeah. about things, they're more likely to happen. Yeah. And so being proactive and you have to be, you know, you mentioned brain development, we do have, and that's not something parents necessarily have to research in depth, but just having some awareness developmentally about what's appropriate for your kids to hear and whatever is appropriate, having that conversation with them so that when, if an abuser does try to take advantage of them and they have that gut instinct that we talked about that, oh, this isn't right. And then the abuser tries to do the manipulation of convincing them not to trust themselves when their body says this isn't right. If you've had those conversations, they're more likely to trust that this isn't right and to come to parents and talk about it. And, and so hopefully we can have those conversations and prevent abuse from happening to begin with. But when it does happen, you know, if, if we, if we have all these gates and the first gate is that we hope it never happens, but if it happens, we really hope they come to, to an adult they trust and talk about it. And we hope that when that they come and talk about it, that it is handled in a safe way that is handled in a way that is not shaming to that person who's experienced that at all. And mm -hmm. that they are given the tools to then trust what they did, that they were right about it, not being not feeling good and not being okay. And so that's a definitely a U-term for me, whatever level your kids can handle developmentally that we've talked to them about it and tried to put in some protections if this does happen. And that, you know, that this may happen within the family because this often, it often is this, you know, yeah. that very rarely a stranger that is the perpetrator. It often is um, a friend or a relative of some sort and often someone in the home. So, so also letting them know that even if it's someone in a position of power over you, you can come talk to me or talk to someone about that. Yeah. And I, this is, this is not me wanting to support abuse or abusers when I talk about perpetrator trauma, but like as a survivor of childhood incestuous sexual abuse, it doesn't do me any good as an adult in my power that I know my abusers can't hurt me anymore. I'm really strong. Like I'm, I'm really strong and I can't be hurt in that same way anymore. But I do know that child abuse is going to continue to happen because of these systems that are in place. And so I, my interest in perpetrators healing comes from this like wounded little child that knows that's not going to stop. It's not going to stop until 
perpetrators are able to take accountability in an authentic, embodied way. And it's not to say that we don't, like, when I say not shaming them, letting them feel their own self-betrayal, feeling the hurt, the pain that they've caused, and be able to embody and process that, right? Like, that's what helps it stop. Yeah. And we have to have providers willing to work with that population. Like we have yeah. to have counselors and therapists and, and that's, you know, I, one of the classes I teach is our diversity class. And, and oftentimes, you know, in that class, we're looking at different um, cultural identities, but I often end the class with the question of what's one client you just would not want to work with, just could not see yourself working with. And this in a, and a childhood sex abuse perpetrator is often what comes up for them. And I get it. Like that's, that's hard, hard work for us as mental health clinicians. And you're absolutely right. Like if, if, if someone had helped the perpetrator, then we don't have all these victims that we have to continually counsel, uh, count, provide counseling for. So that's hard, hard work, but there are some great treatment programs out there that can provide mm -hmm. that same kind of accountability and healing that, that can happen. Now, again, that doesn't excuse the behavior and that doesn't mean that they should maintain any power, any access to children any further, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, that, um, that we have to look at not just the people who've experienced it, but the perpetrators. And, you know, I, I hear a lot of people say that people who perpetrate child sexual abuse are often victims themselves. And, mm -hmm. and I think there's, there's mixed research on that out there. Um, I think there certainly is a case for that, but we also have to be clear that there are lots. And when we talk about those numbers of people who've experienced child sexual abuse, most people do not grow up to then become perpetrators. Most people do not turn into that. So I just also wanted to be clear on that because I hear people ask that question a lot. Any other kind of U-turns um, when we think about that, that come up for you? I don't think so. I think about forgiveness. You know, I know we spent a lot of time talking about that, but that would be just really being intentional about our definition of forgiveness and allowing people space and not having the pressure to forgive and not being shamed that they're a bad Christian if they don't forgive immediately. And that forgiveness does not mean that we said it's okay that this happened. That is not what forgiveness is, you know, that yeah. allowing forgiveness to be a process rather than an event. And I, I think in forgiveness, like I, I think forgiveness in my mind can be synonymous with healing. Uh, like it, it can be right. Meaning making how we feel about our perpetrators, our abusers is a part of the healing process and hating and cutting off from, right? Like that can be an important boundary that we set. It's a lot easier for me to be at peace with my abusers when I know that I'm safe from them. That forgiveness involves rage. It involves very healthy amounts of rage and boundaries and action. Um, yeah. 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 And that's that, that forgiveness often is a releasing or a letting go eventually, but it's not a life goes back to exactly the way it was. And that this person has access to me in the same way, 
You know, that's not, that may be what forgiveness looks like for some people in limited settings. I don't think it ever should be in, in abuse, the having access to a child, but, um, but yeah, I think that's, that's one of the ways forgiveness can look like and really exploring what does it look like in your client's world. And, Mm -hmm. and so I definitely encourage my students to think about that, that when their client says they want to work on forgiving someone, don't assume, you know, what that means, like really dig into what that means. Yeah. Um, So you mentioned rage and we actually have not done our road rage um, section yet. And it's interesting because usually Jill and I have some rants and we, we get into the road rage before we get into that category. But do you have anything that just, just is sitting with you that you want to rage about? (laughs) Oh, I feel like I've been raging this whole time. Like I have so much passion for what I'm talking about because it is personal. So for me, like it just, you know, it's integrated throughout. So I'm, I'm good. I feel great. <laughs> you have, you, it must be that serenity that you have around you. Cause I haven't, I haven't felt the rage, definitely the passion in a really positive way. You know, I talked about, I, I those of you who've heard me talk about my dissertation a lot, that, that some of my passion around this was the anger I would feel at the church when I heard these experiences of abuse. And this one in particular, like this is a place where I definitely feel that rage rising up when I hear about someone in leadership being protected over the person who has experienced the abuse. Like that is one of those places where I just, yeah, where I get the anger just really, really Anytime I think a child is not prioritized as being protected um, is a place where I just, I'm not very objective at all. So that would probably be my big one. I think that's a big part of why I've chosen not to have children at this point is how, how do we, how does anybody live with the responsibility of a child's life? Like, how does it not feel as heavy to everyone as it feels to me? Because that is huge huge it is a huge responsibility to raise a child and it's not taken as that huge responsibility again because of those systems and the trauma uh but yeah i'm I'm with you in that rage of like this is huge protecting children is huge and it takes communities and it takes families it takes everybody being invested in those children yeah so if we look at our billboards category, this Carly is where we tend to look at where the, what we're talking about has shown up in pop culture or in current events or things like that. So obviously this whole episode has been a billboard talking about a very public family and reality TV. But I think the things that we've talked about, we've seen play out over and over and over again as we've seen abuse in celebrity or abuse in religious systems. So if we think of all of the the sex scandals and a lot of televangelists, but yeah, there's, are there other billboards you can think about where we have seen this kind of thing show up in pop culture? Yeah. It's just, it's just everywhere. These systems are everywhere. They get twisted, they get intertwined, they get compounded. And I think pop culture can romanticize or hide or normalize a lot of these really traumatizing, damaging, abusive systems. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of media literacy around disentangling ourselves from what we're fed and inundated with and just bombarded with every day from pop culture. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think about the people who, like, I know there have been letter writing campaigns, I guess now it's email campaigns or other campaigns to, to the, to, I think it's TLC that shows the Duggar show to ask them when this first came out about Josh and his sisters many years ago to take them off the air. And I think at that point they did, he's not been back on the air since then, but it's also interesting to think about the responsibility of the media and what kind of like how much, how responsible are we for what we consume and how responsible is the other end for what they put out? That's, that's interesting to think about. That's probably a whole nother podcast too. Um, Well, Carly, this has been amazing. I'm so appreciative of you being willing to come and share your wisdom. So as we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts about, this is our put it in park segment where we just kind of think about anything that we've talked about that you want to revisit or just what's lingering for you as we wrap up? Mm, It it feels really good to me to be able to kind of rant about it, get it all out there. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. I as well. I think what's lingering for me is just this ongoing work that we have to do to Mm. continually examine these systems and make sure that we're that we're calling them out and holding the systems accountable, that we're holding the individual parts within the systems accountable, um, but that we're recognizing all those individual parts as human within the system too. And how do we, how do we fix the system, but how do we also take care of all the individual humans within the system? It's hard. I, I think the work really starts with ourselves and disentangling within ourselves, right? When, when we want to judge these other systems, when we want to judge the individuals, when we're wanting to, uh, you know, make really focus on other people, we end up avoiding what's in our, in our own nature that we all have power to harm and to heal and noticing and looking at and working with that, taking responsibility for ourselves, how we, what we do with our power what we invest in, what we support, what we engage in. I think that's the work. That's the work. That sounds like a perfect place to put it in part. Well, Carly, it has been such a pleasure to spend this time with you. Thank you so much for giving up your time and for sharing your wisdom. And we will have to have you back. I would love that. Thank you. Yeah, it's been really nice to talk with you. Well, roadies, most of you probably know this by now, but if you want to keep up with us, you can find us, you can find our podcast, Sacred Intersections on social media at Sacred Intersections Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And we're on Twitter at Sacred Pod. We also have a website, sacredintersectionspodcast.com, where you can find all the episodes. You can find some resources and some information about us. And we're going to put a link in the show notes to the conference that both Carly and I will be speaking at the end of this month of May, 2021. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your presentation there, Carly, and what you're going to get to talk about. Is there anything you want to, to plug your, I know you have a private practice. Do you have a website or some social media there where our listeners can find and follow you? I do. I I haven't updated my website in, you know, since pre-COVID, really. <laughs> um, but I'm 
www.carlyosler.com. And I also, so that's not quite up to date. Um, I'm working on some psychedelic integration groups for supporting like spiritual healing and growth. Cool. So that is on safeandsincere.com with uh, my good friend, Annie. But I really just think like, if you Google Carly Osler, I pop up, you'll find me. Yeah. We will put um, yeah. both of those websites in the show notes as well. So people can find us. So awesome. So thank you, Carly. Thanks all of our roadies for tagging along with us today and safe travels through all your sacred intersections throughout the week. And I'll do the Jill woo to end us. 